I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, and welcome to the Agora Podcast Network's The Exchange. I'm your host, Tom Daly. Today I'm very excited to talk with Eric Fogg and Xander Snyder, the voices of one of my favorite new podcast discoveries of 2016, Reconsider. I tune in to Reconsider for an analysis and exploration of current events and pertinent contemporary issues presented in a full, three-dimensional way that often provides me with fresh perspectives and alternative viewpoints. The topics Eric and Xander pick are always relevant and diverse, and perusing their back catalog, you'll find subjects from the South China Sea to education policy in the United States to the FARC peace agreement. And whether you're listening and don't know what any of these things are, or if you already have strong opinions on them, I equally recommend that you check out Reconsider because there's value there that each listener can benefit from. And there lies the beauty of Reconsider. So, let's get to it. Xander and Eric, welcome to The Exchange. Hey, thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. We're excited to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you guys. Um, you know, it seems like an apropos time to have uh, two uh, political scientists, essentially, <laughs> on the show. It's that type of year so far in 2017. Yeah, I think that, you know, obviously there's a lot going on that is pretty unprecedented, to put it lightly. There's a lot of fear, um, a lot of hyperbole on both sides. One of the tough things is that um, among some things that I think some people should be genuinely concerned about, there's also sort of a lot of hysteria that either overplays some of what's going on or I think gets distracted on some of the issues uh, that aren't necessarily as important. Um, and so I think a lot of what I'd really like to help people do in the immediate future is sort of help stay focused and help understand what what's really going on so that they can better align their political activities to their priorities. Right. And that sort of general type of thinking is what's 
behind reconsider, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. I, our tagline is, we don't do the thinking for you. And, and what does that mean? I mean, it's so easy to go out there right now and find, well, I was going to say information, but really find outlets or sources <laughs> where people are just kind of spewing opinions at you. And it's Yeah, it's easy to find the show where there is one person on the right and one person on the left, and they're just arguing for five minutes. And I imagine it makes for great ratings. But the thing is, it doesn't do much for providing context to people. And it's extraordinarily difficult to understand the world without understanding the context in which events are occurring. So in Reconsider, what we try to do is not tell you how to think, but talk about this context. Talk about the container in which all of these events sit so that people can better interpret reality and what's going on for themselves. I just want to take a step back and ask you guys a background question. How did this partnership come to be? <laughs> it's such a good story. Uh, so I'd been starting this on my own for a while, and there's a whole background story on that from Tim Ferriss to Marcus Aurelius to John Locke to a summer away in Europe. And after going for it for a while, it's a, you know, it's a bit of a lonely job trying to run a shop on your own. And we had this forum uh, going for a while. We were talking about a lot of these very important issues. And there was this guy X that uh, was always jumping in with some of the most thoughtful, well-researched stuff. And I had a lot of respect for him. And I mentioned to a friend of mine, Tom Weber, who had brought him into the Tom forum. Weber. Uh, how much, yeah, Tom, shout out to shout Tom. Out. Uh, how much respect I had for this guy X and, Oh, it was XSS, X-S-E-S-S. And I knew nothing else about him, of course. And uh, I think Xander did the same thing. He could weigh in. But Tom said, why don't you guys do a project together? Why not a podcast? You should do a podcast. No, of course, Tom's not a political scientist. Uh, he's more of an engineering type. And when he said that, I kind of I had this shrugging moment of, you know, why not? I'll try it. And then while I was in an airport, I forget exactly where I was going uh, possibly coming from a visit to, well, whatever. Uh, I was on the phone with Xander, and we, within, I think, 30 minutes, had established a rapport and decided to start, you know, try something out. The only thing that I will add to that is I actually don't think it was Tom originally who said, oh. do the podcast. It was his wife, Bryn. Oh, right. It was Bryn. Oh, gosh. I'm sorry, Bryn. No, no, it's good. Yes. Wow. We were at lunch, and she's like, yeah. Yeah, you guys should. Tom was talking about how we should meet, and then Brent's like, "Yeah, maybe you guys should do a podcast." I listen to that, so I, I just sent sent Eric an email, and here we are. Well, she's got great sense. <laughs> Bryn, uh, we haven't promised Bryn a cut of the you know the finder's fee yet, but if we make it big, I'm sure you know a fruit basket or whatever the modern day equivalent is might just show up at her at her door. <laughs> So, guys, what what informs each of your individual worldviews? Oh, boy. Xander? I think something that we try to do on Reconsider, something that I, I try to do personally, is, is understand what's going on as best as possible, as objectively as possible. And as soon as you bring in the word objectivity, if you're being honest with yourself, and if you've done your research, 
you have to recognize that there is no such thing. Everyone has cognitive biases. And I think one of the books that changed the way that I think about thinking is Thinking Fast and Slow by Kahneman, who talks about these cognitive biases in depth and, and how we're all subject to them. There is no such thing as objectivity. The best you can do is is try to recognize that these biases exist and and try to correct for them as well as you can based on some research that that suggests that there are certain ways to correct these systematic biases. So in my mind, I'm always on the hunt for sort of, I'm always on the hunt for these biases in play in my own mind. And a lot of the times these things manifest themselves as emotions. So when you get defensive, for example, a lot of the times that's a conversation stopper. What I try to do and what I'm not always successful at is say, okay, I am recognizing this emotion going on in myself. Is this a sign that I am right? I need to dig my heels in or do I need to kind of pause for a minute and reapproach this conversation from a new perspective? Yeah, I think for me, the way I'm going to frame it is more in, in my influences. Uh, I don't know if that's the intent, but it's what came to mind. So I'm going to run with it. Um, you know, you can break those influences down generally in two ways. One of them is experiences and one of them is, you know, other thinkers or, or sources of thinking and values, much like Kahneman, Kahneman, uh, that are very important, that have been very important in your life. And my experience side was I grew up in rural Pennsylvania in a pretty right wing area. Um, it was frequently quoted in my area that I think, you know, attributed to Mark Twain, as is every great quote, uh, that mm -hmm. Pennsylvania is Philadelphia, Pittsburgh and Kentucky in between. <laughs> uh, so we affectionately called ourselves Pennsylvania. It was a pretty right wing area. And there were a lot of people in there who were pretty angry about uh, the left and felt like, and this was back in the 90s, um, felt like the left was really betraying them, was betraying American values and the Constitution, and there was a lot of vitriol. And this is before, you know, internet memes and such, but there was still that level of sort of anger spewing. And I, of course, adopted it as a young, impressionable kid. Um, I then w shipped up to Cambridge quite suddenly to go to MIT and found, of course, the opposite. I found probably the, possibly the most liberal left-wing enclave in the country and found the complete opposite uh, amount uh, or direction of vitriol, but same amount, same mm -hmm. uh, and, and same general messaging that the right was betraying American values, betraying uh, citizens and wanted to tear down the country. And uh, I argued about it for a little while and, and my views shifted to a more amorphous spot, but I realized that there was something going on here and that, uh, both sides really had no understanding of what the other thinks or believes or values. Uh, they create these caricature monsters of each other that are uh, particularly unhelpful. And since the 90s, I've been starting to think maybe this is a driver of polarization and a major problem. Uh, and I've, I feel pretty vindicated by it so far, although this is one of those instances where I feel quite damned to be right. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that's actually informed not only how I see the world, but also... Uh, what I've decided to do, why I started to reconsider. Uh, and then my, my intellectual influencers uh, came from a uh, girl I was dating and now one of my best friends, Heather, who's a political theory PhD at Boston College. And she turned me on to political theory and philosophy 
and I got totally addicted to it. So of the many, many books I've read, probably the ones that most infiltrate my worldview are uh, Marcus Aurelius, the Stoic Emperor of uh, Rome, and mm -hmm. probably uh, just my love for him gives me a strong bias in the Marcus Aurelius v. Emperor Taizong battle. <laughs> um, and I, I may never be able to come off that. But other big influences of mine were, of course, Sir Thomas Paine. Uh, John Stuart Mill is a huge one. John Locke and Immanuel Kant. Um, and I probably, if if someone said, Eric, what's your like kind of crazy ambition for life? What's the thing that you're a little embarrassed to tell people that you want to be? It is to be the next John Locke. <laughs> I'm okay. a little embarrassed by it. Uh, that, shoot for the moon. Yes, and if you miss, you'll land in space and die of void exposure. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to pick up on something that I think Xander mentioned, sort of the uh, the the show Creed. We don't do the thinking for you. And I think implicit in that, and I could be wrong, and please correct me if I am, implicit in that, is a faith that if the facts of a thing are laid out plainly, natural reasoning will progress any unbiased individual towards a consensus opinion or, or perhaps a truth. Is that what is behind that? Like in by just laying the facts out plainly without spin, will people arrive at the same place? Oh, it's such a good challenge. And uh, since Xander came up with the motto, I'm going to let him take it first. Yeah, I, I actually don't necessarily think that's that's correct. I don't think there is such a thing as an unbiased individual. Mm -hmm. I mean, researching cognitive psychology and neuroscience shows us that these these people don't exist. I mean, the rational actor model works fine and all for economics before the 1970s, but the model has been proved to be flawed in a number of ways. So... You know, we can do our best to discuss facts, recognizing that any interpretation of history is going to come through the lens of the person interpreting it. And what we try to do on Reconsider is do our absolute best to recognize when we think our own internal biases might be playing into something. So one of our commitments to our audience is if we are going to be discussing a topic where we think we may have a bias of one sort or another, we, we really try hard to admit to that bias up front before discussing the topic because we think our listeners have a right to know how our interpretation of reality is going to be skewed by our own biases. So we do our best to provide context, not because we think that if you lay facts out straight, everyone is going to rationally come to the same answer but because we think that a commitment to objectivity is the best that you can possibly do. And we, we try to do that not just in how we present the information, but also in recognizing that how we present the information necessarily affects how we present the information. Eric, is that something you endorse, or is, do we have a, a dissenting opinion? Eric Fogg endorses this message, and I also read into your question a bit of a Another challenge I heard in my head, yeah, but Eric, will it work? And the reason I read into the, or read mm -hmm. that from your question is that I get it a lot, right? And uh, uh, in particular, when I'm 
making a case for approaching dialogue in a certain way, a lot of people go, yeah, but, but you know, the people who aren't me or agree with me completely, they don't listen to facts. So, you know, we should just yell at them or make memes that make fun of them or punch them or something. I, but something that's, that's not facts, Eric. It's got to be different. And so not, necess- not because of that particular objection, uh, but I think just from understanding human psychology, understanding history, certainly, and just understanding people, the idea that when people are presented with facts, reasonable people are going to agree on the same narrative about them uh, isn't something that we can hope for on its own. What I happen to believe is that most people's positions and opinions are informed by the people around them, and in particular, leaders, thought leaders, influencers. Uh, in Before the age of the internet, this was often the traditional media or political leaders. Um, now it's much more complex. And one of the reasons I believe this is that the best predictor up to 90, I don't know how many high percent, of what religion you're going to adopt is your parents' religion or the religion of your mm-hmm. community, right? So you adopt this belief in the like metaphysical nature of the universe and the morality of good and bad just based on what, what people around you think as opposed to sort of laying out all the facts of the religions and going, hmm, I wonder which one makes the most sense, if any of them. Um, mm. And given this, what it means is that the way to influence most people is to tap into the people who have the potential to be influencers in part due to their capacity to think and lay things out and bring a sort of challenging new perspective uh, to people. So those are the people who can change things, right? They're, they're talented in a number of ways. Um, and we can identify them not necessarily by understanding their attributes, but, but just by seeing how people respond to them sort of, you know, influences when you see them. Ultimately the kind of people we appeal to, are that influencer category. And those are the people we want to get. And the way that we help them is not only arming them with context to be able to explain things to their community and their friends in a way that they're able to tap into because they have trust from these groups. Um, But what we also want to do is frankly influence their own style of thinking. And so we both present sort of toolboxes and and individual challenges on different issues to help them start questioning things in a way that they haven't questioned it before, but also just by giving people a habit of reconsidering their positions after uh, hearing the context, both historical and, you know, philosophical and and political um, of each issue we hope and we believe that they'll start to bring this habit out to other issues so that they can start the practice of interpreting them more effectively um, on their own and then be able to pass that on to the people who listen to them. Well, I think it sounds like you guys definitely bring a lot of thoughtfulness into how you uh, construct your episodes. I was wondering if maybe you wanted to give us a peek behind the curtain uh, when it comes to producing an episode of Reconsider? Hmm. I guess it depends on the episode, right, Eric? I mean, sometimes uh, Eric will come up with an idea. Sometimes I'll come up with an idea. Sometimes we'll come up with an idea together over over a beer or two, and we happen to be in the same location. And a lot of the times, one of us will usually sit down and do some preliminary research and the other will add to that Google Doc, and we'll add comments, and we'll challenge one another. And actually, that's a big part of the process is we 
rigorously challenge one another in the process of creating the content because that is sort of the best way, I think, to get it a better interpretation of of events is having someone who you you trust and who you believe is reputable kind of to the point that Eric just made challenging your own position. So that happens a lot. We put together, you know, a, a handful of bullets and then we get on and we talk about it. One of the great things about Xander and my relationship is we actually don't agree on everything. So probably we sh- we would say that we share the same values and we have some different notions not too different of economics, uh, international relations, and some other political science stuff. And so what it does is actually, for the most part, creates this really healthy dialogue where I think we've both learned from each other. I think the value that really brings is that it means that it's harder for one of our preset perspectives on reality to leak into the episode because what we'll have to do is reach a resolution to any disagreements and to some extent that happens during the research right we learn a lot while we research stuff we're not coming to you with this kind of preformed understanding of an issue and saying ah yes like from on high eric and xander will tell you what's up right we're not like shock jocks on the radio the research informs what we say as opposed to just backs up what we plan to say and as we learn from that we're actually able to present a much more you know contextually helpful and sort of viewpoint limited show while at the same time, obviously increasing our own understanding of each topic and, you know, capacity to do this better in the future. Okay, guys, I think something that you've talked about a lot, and I think a lot of people have have talked about since the, the American presidential election is the idea of intellectual bubbles. And I I feel like maybe 2016 was, if not a crisis, I would say a watershed. And and what I mean is, it's certainly the year that uh, the flawed but largely responsible and what I consider legitimate sources for news and information like the New York Times, uh, ABC, CBS, the major networks, were displaced and not by... Uh, a diverse, decentralized newscape of passionate but ethical independent journalists, but really by ideological, insular conspiracy bloggers, it seemed, Um, you know, from, take your pick, Occupy Democrats on the left to uh, Breitbart on the right. Consumers of this information just lined up, really, it seemed to be spoon-fed partisan affirmations and canned outrage. So I want to throw it out there to you guys. Does a civic common ground still exist in the United States? Because right now, I think it feels for a lot of folks that if it did, it's been put to the torch and the earth's been salted. Has a civic common ground ever really existed? And I mean, the the the, the thing with this narrative that and I, I'm not necessarily disagreeing with you, but I have a tendency to take devil's advocate just to challenge common narratives, is that everyone in every generation always thinks that their generation is somehow unique or more important than all others. And I'm not saying that the the election of Trump did not represent some sort of signal uh, necessarily, but I think there is a tendency for people to 
overweight the importance of their own time. I mean, for example, you look back at uh, the late 1960s. I mean, where was the civic common ground there? I mean, there were massive urban riots all over the U.S. There was an unpopular war where tens of thousands of people were being sent to be killed against their will. Um, you can go back further to FDR. I mean, people called him just terrible names. I mean, I don't remember exactly, but it's things like, you know, the devil or people equated him with the. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. End of some sort of civilized society. And then you go back even further to the you know the the uh, debate between Jackson and, and John Quincy Adams. I mean there is always extreme contention in American political dialogue, and I think that it ebbs and flows, and the pendulum swings back and forth, and we may be at one relative maxima, perhaps. But to th- th- this nostalgia for a time when everything was better, I think, misses a big part of the point. Now, I think there is some intellectual isolation going on. I think there, well, some rhetorical isolation going on, because some of the debates and some of the conversation isn't very intellectual. And what's the cause of that? I, I don't know. It's really hard to say, but I think, you know, some people will blame it on social media. Some people will blame it on, you know, cities becoming relatively more insular and more left-leaning while the interior of the country is becoming more right-leaning, where maybe in the past it's been dis- distributed somewhat differently. Some people will blame that on, you know, how trade, where perhaps it's benefiting the country as a whole, but it's benefiting different groups of individuals on different timelines, which separates the discussion somewhat. But it does certainly seem that a very large part of the country, and this included a big part of the media, missed the phenomenon of Donald Trump. And to me, whether or not you agree with this election, that is an indication of a deeper trend that's worth paying attention to, which is what you pointed pointed to, which is this sense of, of bubbles becoming more prominent in how we discuss and think about our roles in society. Yeah, and to, to jump on your coattails, there is certainly evidence that these bubbles have grown. 
and that they have the the sort of soap wall around the bubble has grown thicker and less penetrable. Um, I'm at a loss to cite the specific statistics, but in my research for my book, little plug there, Wedged, uh, we talk about, to a large extent, what political polarization looks like. Things that we do know is that more and more people are getting their news sources from biased media uh, almost exclusively, and they talk less to people who disagree with them. This has led to a growing sense that the other side is a threat to the United States. So that number of people who think the other side is a threat keeps going up over time. And it's reached sort of new highs since we have started recording it in the 1970s or so. The period up until, you know, the mid 90s or so was considered this age of consensus. And to some extent, that consensus was based not in agreeing on stuff, because to Xander's point, there was vehement agreement, but it was based in the sense that there was there were common values that Americans all shared. Some of this may have been due to the fact that the Soviet Union was such a frightening and ideologically different enemy, just as the Nazis were frightening an ideological enemy that we were all united against. And that may have caused a big part of that age of consensus and the fact that everyone sort of gravitated towards, even when they disagreed with each other, identifying with each other. The reason I bring this up when we're talking about news is that, to a large extent, my understanding is that people who gravitate towards certain news do that to a large extent because it confirms their their feeling of solidarity within their tribe, be it a left tribe or a right tribe. And I believe that if the United States were to pivot towards a sense of a more unified tribe, that the urge to consume media that confirms the justice and validity of my own tribe and the monstrousness of the other tribe would start to wane. And if that desire starts to wane, uh, market forces will take over and news media will pivot back towards being something that, uh, you know, just doesn't do that as much because it will make them as much money. Yeah. And for what it's worth, mm. this narrative that Eric presents is very well referenced and very well sourced in his book Wedged. I think it's a compelling thesis and it's worth reading if you want more detail. Do you want to say where they can get it, Eric? Oh, sure. Yeah. Just to plug it. Um, if you want to learn more about the book, you can go to wedgednation.com. Uh, we've got a few videos and stuff there that explains a bit of what the book's about. And you can find it, of course, on Amazon. Uh, it's by Nat Green and Eric Fogg. The subtitle is How You Became a Tool of the Partisan Political Establishment and How to Start Thinking for Yourself Again. We came up with that title because we wanted it to be, you know, a gentle introduction to political polarization. Very gentle. <laughs> Subtle. Tool. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Subtle. Uh, this is a quote from George Orwell, uh, famously the author of 1984, and he's describing what doublethink is. To know and to not know. To be conscious of complete truthfulness while telling carefully constructed lies. To hold simultaneously two opinions which canceled out knowing them to be contradictory and believing in both of them, to use logic against logic, 
to repudiate morality while laying claim to it, to believe that democracy is impossible and that the party was the guardian of democracy, to forget whatever it was necessary to forget, then to draw it back into memory again at the moment when it was needed, and then promptly to forget it again, and above all, to apply the same process to the process itself. Now, I'm not bringing politics into the show because it's not something I try to do, and I don't want to discuss Donald Trump uh, and his policies, per se, because um, that's not why people listen to the show, and that's not why you know I, I have great thinkers like you on. And as far as biases go, I'm going to put it out there that I myself did not support Mr. Trump, but that is not informing what I'm about to say either. I wonder, though, if you share my alarm that since the inauguration of the 45th president, uh, that there's been a swift succession of events having to do with the manipulation or suppression of information, which is what brought that Orwell quote to my mind. Um, and I think everyone listening is likely familiar with what I'm talking about, uh, the strange battle over crowd size, um, the dystopian phrase, alternative facts, um, or Mr. Trump blaming the media for his feud with the intelligence community, even though it's still there to read on, on his personal Twitter account. Um, things like that. Now, guys, at the time of this recording, the Trump presidency is about 10 days old. Are we heading down some type of Orwellian road here? And if not, how does rationality, moderation, maybe even objectivity, Xander, and generally evidence-based decision-making make a comeback in our dialogue? I don't know, Eric. It all seems pretty double-plus ungood to me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that, was, that was excellent. That was well, well some, done. I have some thoughts. Um, my own bias here, I sort of share... Tom's concerns over a bunch of this stuff. I think in particular of suppression of the media. You know, one of the things that you missed in your examples was Steve Bannon saying that the media is the opposition party and it should just shut up, uh, which is conventionally not what we want the media to do um, in, a, in a democracy. And the part that is concerning, of course, is that Donald Trump is in a position of leadership. And there is a group of people in the country that look to him as an intellectual leader. How large that group is, is, uh, you know, highly debatable, right? And who they are mm -hmm. is highly debatable and, and how motivated and devoted they are is highly debatable. For example, I don't think that most people that voted for Donald Trump see him as their intellectual leader. Uh, after eight days, Donald Trump achieved an over 50% disapproval rating, which is the fastest mm -hmm of any president since we've been recording this by a lot. Uh, George W. Bush, for example, was, I think, well over 1,200 days. Um, now, of course, he had 9-11 to help him, but mm. it took a very long time for, uh, at least in the high numbers of hundreds, for any president to reach over 50% disapproval rating. I think to some extent, the, uh, the very thing that a lot of people believe has been a danger to the democracy, um, as, as we talked about to some extent, social media is one of the things that gives it some hope. 
to a large extent, the way that a government, whether it is a fascist government or a democratic government, for example, in times of war, controls how people think is by controlling the definition of truth. When we talk about alternative facts, we're talking about attempts to control the definition of truth. The times these efforts fail is when they fail to control the truth and are therefore exposed by a more plausible and more credible truth. Um, in these cases, such attempts backfire. Propaganda is a tricky thing. You have to be at the helm of it, right? You have to have a monopoly on information. So when we look to the past when, you know, if we're thinking worst case scenario here, when we look to the past of dictators creating a monopoly on truth and creating their own narrative and their own propaganda that people believe, whether they're communist countries, fascist countries, etc., they've had that monopoly. And the thing is, until you can take down the internet, uh, until you can take down Twitter and people's ability to pull out uh, their own information and share it and discuss it, you're never actually going to achieve a true monopoly on information and a true monopoly on narrative. And so the reason I've put that together with Donald Trump's disapproval rating is that it suggests that people don't actually see him as an intellectual leader. And I think if his approval rating continues to drop, um, what he says is going to be largely discredited. And I think it actually has a chance of galvanizing the country in a form of intellectual unity. Um, let's say Donald Trump's approval rating is something like 10%. Then you have a country that is highly, highly united against his messaging. Uh, and they become more reliant on their own capacity to discern truth as opposed to the spoon feeding that we're so concerned about. So while there is some stuff to be worried about here, I think there is also a path forward that can be very positive. So I, I have a perspective and it's not a positive one, but I, eh, maybe it's a positive one. It depends on how you consider silver linings. I, I think Humanity has a tendency to not really want to or be capable of fixing things until they get to a certain tipping point. And then when something becomes imminent, we have a tendency to rush to the problem. And we've been successful at fi fixing a lot of problems in the past this way. And I'm not saying that this trend will necessarily continue, but this is a starting point for, for how I'm thinking about the, the current situation. You know, one perspective is you can look at Donald Trump as a leader that's pulling the country in one direction, and I think that this is the framework with which a lot of people interpret his election and his presidency, and that's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is he is a symptom of deeper underlying trends that are worth recognizing because it is those deeper underlying trends that you want to try to address with your approach to politics and policy. What's the mm -hmm. deeper underlying trend? Well, I, I kind of mentioned it briefly before, but I think one of the biggest, most substantial trends in the last 30 to 35 years has been basically general establishment consensus that certain types of free trade agreements and globalization are just you know good for everyone. And the, the economics and the research is there to generally show that in the long term, 
these types of policies are good for countries as a whole, are good for economies as a whole, and I generally support free trade policies. So there's my own personal perspective. Here's the thing. What we've noticed only fairly recently, maybe in the last eight years or so, is that the timing between which the economy or country as a whole benefits from these policies and the short term in which individuals and certain types of industries are displaced as a result of these types of policies don't line up exactly. So while in theory a lot of these free trade policies are supposed to attempt to correct for this by providing certain types of training and certain types of job assistance to people who are in highly or in industries that are highly likely to be displaced, these parts of the agreements have not worked out so well. And people are in these industries and who have been affected more in the short term and who aren't reaping the benefits from these types of policies are kind of going, you know what? I don't care if this is good in the long run. I'm suffering now. I can't feed my family. And this is a problem. Mm -hmm. And when you're faced with that alternative, you don't really care what your option is so long as it's not the same thing that's been putting you in this position. So what happens? Well, you get someone who plays pretty fast and loose with the truth. And, you know, let's be real here. Donald Trump is not a new phenomenon. All politicians lie. It's a matter of degree, right? But, you know, he has come to power. And I think what we'll probably see, because this is generally what happens when you know, societies are, are pushed to the brink and recognize that something is imminent is that leaders who are not in Trump's camp are going to recognize that they've been missing something really critical in their approach to leadership in the last 30 years. And they're probably going to start offering new types of policies to attempt to correct from this and get back into power in four to eight years. Would this have happened if you didn't have this imminent push to the brink well, I mean, that's that's a little hyperbolic, but, you know, w would this sort of correction in policy in the establishment occur without sort of a red flag? I don't know, but I, I, I think that's how human societies tend to work. So we're hoping for a course correction. I think it's coming, and I think you need events like Trump's election to force those course corrections. I'm not saying it's good that that's how it works, but I think based on at least how I've observed history, that's how it tends to happen. So kind of in way of, of wrapping up, um, you know, what's on the horizon for reconsider? We've actually got a lot of really cool stuff in store. Um, <clears throat> in the past, we've done a lot of solo projects and these have been great. They have been, you know, they've, they've helped us establish who we are. They've helped us learn a lot. Uh, they've helped us grow quite a bit. I think a lot of what we've been missing is the input of experts. Because to some extent, you know, Xander and I put hours of research into something. And people go, wow. <laughs> and then you, you realize, you look around and you go, wow, this professor's put, you know, 20,000 hours of work <laughs> into this. And they know a lot of stuff. And to a large extent, our comparative advantage is not our knowledge of a subject our knowledge of subjects is quite limited even after all the research our comparative advantage is our capacity to uh, pick apart all of the mass of what's what's sort of thrown at you and help put it into a context 
uh, that is, you know, really helpful for you to think about it and make up your own mind. And so we're teaming up with a lot more of these experts in the future to help us bring way better content to our listeners. And so the stuff that we've got coming up next in February is particularly exciting. So in February and March, we're running a four-part series on understanding Russia, which obviously is a pretty big thing in the news right now and has been for the past few years. Uh, it's a country that's very poorly understood, even by us. Mm-hmm. And so in, these, in this four-part series, we're recruiting a lot of help from experts that have been working in government, have been working in scholarship and in universities, think tanks, or even just been podcasters about it that have devoted tons of time to their own hundreds of episodes of, uh, you know, of material in order to become experts on it. And these guys, I think, are really going to dovetail with us and our expertise really, really well uh, to take our game to the next level. I want to just jump, you know, piggyback on something you said a minute ago, Eric, which I think is pretty important and certainly applies to the philosophy of how I think about the show, which is, you know, we're, we're not experts. Eric and I don't have PhDs. You know, we have degrees in relevant subjects. He, Eric has a master's in political science. So it's not like we haven't studied this stuff, but we haven't put 20 years into this. And if you were to say, are we more similar to this, you know, professor or just the average person who's relatively concerned about what's going on in the world, it's obviously the latter. And, you know, I, I don't think that anything we talk about on the show is something that your average, curious, careful person who is interested about the world couldn't figure out on their own. But we recognize that we're, we're kind of like wonks, like we enjoy this stuff. And it's, it's our hobby to put a lot, a lot of time into reading and researching it. So the, what we bring to bear is that we enjoy doing this research and, and we know that you know, maybe 90% of the population cares a lot about politics and policy, but it's just not what keeps them up at night. So I don't think it's reasonable to expect the average person to want to spend hours a day researching this stuff. We do. So we help out with that and we just want to condense it in in a, in a, in a format that's easy to digest for the average person that doesn't want to spend five hours a day on it. They maybe want to spend an hour a day or an hour every couple of days. Xander, you said the word wonks. I, I have a correction I'd like to submit. Let's hear it. <laughs> and the the better word is nerds. Oh, sure. Yeah, that works. <laughs> well, guys, as a listener, I can say I, I really uh, appreciate uh, the effort and the presentation you guys you know put forward. It, it, I do like how the show gets in the weeds and isn't afraid to be in the weeds. Um, and really sort of crystallizes questions, uh, you know, to ask myself as, as much as, you know, any type of answer that one might expect when they, they usually tune into a podcast. So uh, I want to thank you guys, uh, for that consistent quality that you bring, uh, you know, to reconsider. Thanks, man. Yeah. And thank, thank you, Tom. I, actually have really enjoyed this interview, not just because it's been fun and we like talking to you, but the questions have been really, really good challenges um, in particular about sort of our theory of change, right? Like, you know, to some extent, you know, is what you're doing going to work? Is 
civil dialogue dead? Is thinking dead? All this stuff. These are questions that people are asking. And, you know, I'm sure we gave, you know, partially satisfying answers to this <laughs> stuff. And to some extent, you know, if we'd fully figured it out, we'd, you know, the country might be in a different place. Um, but these challenges are not only stuff for us to think about, but I also hope that you know, I'm going to go back and listen to this. I hope that our answers are good enough that when other people have these questions, I can point them to this episode and say, hey, here's where we put a lot of thought into the big picture here, not just a singular uh, issue. So I'm, I'm really glad with how it came out. It was also fun and we enjoyed talking to you. Well, guys, I appreciate that. It was, it was my pleasure to have you on the exchange. And, uh, you know, I appreciate you taking the time. I know you're both busy guys, world travelers. Um, and I, uh, it was a real honor to talk to you guys. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks for having us. Oh, thanks, Tom. And uh, to all the exchange listeners, thanks for tuning in. This is Eric signing off. This is Andrew signing off. And this is Tom signing off. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.